Hey everyone, first off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal, Ngambri, and Warring people of the Kulin Nation, past, present, and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Matt, your familiar stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Joining me today on the podcast is Dr. Ian Pollock. Ian was one of the founders of The Familiar Strange, alongside Dr. Simon Theobald, Dr. Julia Brown, and Dr. Jodie Lee Trembath. In today's episode, we dive into the origin story of The Familiar Strange and how they all got involved in this project, how it helped or didn't help them in their respective PhDs. We also touch on how I got involved in this project and the early days of working in this space. We end on the state of public anthropology and what the future holds for engaging the public with anthropological knowledge and thought. It was an absolute pleasure to sit down with Ian and learn more about the origin story of this project that all familiar strangers, past and present, have worked so hard on. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on The Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's interview. So here it is, my conversation with Dr. Ian Pollock. For the people that don't know, you're Ian Pollock, one of the <laughs> one of the OGs, one of the quite literally <laughs> the founders of this podcast that we're having on there. It's quite a surreal experience. We are your original familiar strangers. How did Familiar Strange start? I mean, we mm. can get to the, the names later, but what was that first conversation like where you, Simon, Julia, Jody sat down and were like, hey, let's interview each other? So I had been in the field in 2016, started early 2017, and I'm a big podcast fan. And I have been for ages, and I had been looking for anthropology podcasts to listen to, and there were some that existed, not a whole lot. There are some... Anybody who's found The Familiar Strange will have found these other things. So some of them are like courses that have been up since 2008 and nobody's touched them since then. And they sit at the top of the ranking because they've been there so long, but they're not live feeds. And there are ones that had interviews. New Books Network had an anthropology podcast, New Books and Anthropology. And there were a few others out there. But to my ear, they were missing some of the things that I wanted from a podcast. And one of them was a close attention to sound quality and the kind of editing that I was accustomed to from other podcasts. I had also just downloaded a player around that time when I started listening to certain things at high speed. And I was developing a taste for listening to certain things just a little bit, just a little bit faster, like I added 10%. I felt like it brought a lot of energy, especially to academic podcasting. Like it brought energy and urgency to the way people talked that if you just listened at the pace of thought you know they <laughs> mm, let me think about you know people just it was listening to people pulling teeth it was difficult it was difficult to listen to it wasn't pleasurable to listen to 
That said, a lot of them had perfectly good content. Like they would do interesting interviews with interesting people who'd done interesting work. It was just hard to listen to. And I had this thought that the content didn't have to be better. It just had to be presented better. We would eat the lunch of those other podcasts. So I had that in mind. Just in my own past, I'd been a theater kid and I like performing and I'm straight white guy from America who thinks I can put myself like every, I'm welcome in every room and mine is the voice of authority and hegemony. And so I figured I could be that person who could deliver all of that. So I'm accepting the judgment of all listeners on that, on that statement. I accept your judgment. So yes, I had that kind of hubris. I think that Jody had a similar idea. I think Jody and I had that chat. And at the same time, you know, Simon was a great friend of mine already. We did our master's together before we started PhDs. We were in master's degree together. So he was one of the first people I wanted to see when I came back to Canberra. And he and Julia had just started a blog, largely because they were reacting to the election of Donald Trump, which was just a few months earlier. And I think a lot of people, certainly outside the country, as well as inside America, were flabbergasted as to how that could happen and just completely blindsided. And there was a feeling that there was a a lack of understanding among sort of highly educated elites like me and like ourselves who didn't understand why anybody would have made that choice to vote for that guy. And also looking for tools for how we were going to communicate with each other going forward because different sides of this political divide were clearly talking past each other and had been invisible to each other for some time. It was really difficult to imagine we had all been side by side, but here was the evidence. So they had started a blog to start venting some of those feelings. And I don't remember whose idea it was in the first place to bring it all together, but it seemed like a good idea to kind of unite these projects in a single platform so that we could all support, I hesitate to use this word, but all the different products could support each other. Yes. Um, And then the idea was to kind of build it out into a platform that would be larger than ourselves. But in order to first set that example, we wanted to sort of create it as a publication that people could have a relationship with. So we would each blog every week. We were on a rotation. So there'd be a new blog post every week. We took a while to figure out how we wanted to do the podcast. As I recall, we made 17 mock episodes. Yes, those are stored very deep in the in the archives. <laughs> oh my god. One of these was an interview I did with an academic at ANU. It ran for like 2 hours and got really combative because I had it in my head that I wanted to ask personal questions. One of the podcasts I really admire is the Long Form podcast and this was one that I had in mind as a model. It's uh, journalists talking to journalists, especially magazine journalists, but also people who write books and there's a lot of parallels with kind of ethnographic work. It's obviously not the same, but people going out and immersing themselves in an unfamiliar situation and then coming home, you know, that kind of home field divide and writing about that. There's a lot of very practical advice in it. It's always very process oriented. They talk about content, but it's it's really about process. And I wanted to make something like that. So you get to know the academics that we talk to and kind of ground their work in their personalities. The academic I did this interview with was strongly against that. So the interview did not go well. But it was really instructive, not only because doing the interview was a challenge, finding the limits of of that vision of what the podcast should be was a challenge to me personally. And just to accept that I was wrong about that, that it wasn't going to be productive the way I wanted it to. 
And we also like we ran through some formats in which like there was one where I played segments of the interview to the other familiar strangers in the studio and then we discussed them. Interesting. Okay. Which was also a terrible idea. It was also a terrible idea because it's like somebody's gone out of their way to help you out and record an interview with you. And then you're going to sit there and critique them in real time. Like, it wasn't gracious. No one was ever going to listen to one and then decide they wanted to do one. There were going to be no winners for that one, that's for sure. Oh, man. Terrible idea. So we ran through a lot of different formats, ways we wanted to structure it. There was also like... The problem of if you just ask people about what they did in the field, you're asking them to present their ethnography without nearly so much context as they would have if they were doing it in writing. And you're asking people to speak directly for their interlocutors, the, the people they did their research with. And also that just like anthropological findings are not findings, like they're not clean cut. They're nuanced. Exactly. And they're situated and... They require so much context. So like we were learning about science communication. We are sort of getting some mentorship from the Center for the Public Awareness of Science at ANU. And science communication is based on communicating findings. And we felt that that was not a clean, that was not a comfortable fit for anthropology. So talking about process and steering clear of that kind of, those kind of personal questions that I had originally had in mind. In the course of having that discussion, people talk about their findings, and they talk about the specifics of their work. And you try to create that kind of intimate and conversational atmosphere where people relax. I know that when people talk about anthropology podcasting or academic podcasting, one of the tones they often say they're chasing is like over a beer at the pub, the best conversation you had in the hallway at the conference, in that space where people are excited about their work and talking to somebody who knows the lingo but doesn't know your specific field site or area or topic or area of interest, like theoretical interest. So getting into that comfortable atmosphere for uh, interviews was a really important part of it. I think that comfortable atmosphere kind of permeated the team too, because I joined the team, I want to say late 2017, 2018, I think. Must have been 2018, because we were just getting started in 2017. I I kind of found this real friendly, obviously, everyone was very friendly. (laughs) Not to say that anthropologists aren't friendly, <laughs> but I, you know, I sort of came in, oh, I'm a, I'm a science communication student, you know, and these are anthropologists, but then sort of within the first couple of weeks, that barrier kind of melted and there was a real authenticity to how you guys conducted yourselves. I, I feel as though that authenticity permeated the team. It was a very honest yeah, it was very honest about how we used to work. I think a few nights where sort of I, I was like, uh, it's it's 11.30 at night and I still haven't done the cut yet, but that's okay, we'll get through. <laughs> uh, but we'd all, we'd all been there. You know, that team, we were an extremely collegial team. We spent a lot of time together. We had the longest, most inefficient meetings. We would have meetings that were, that were just like, let's just get together for 30 minutes. We're going to hash out A, B, and C. And we two hours later, we'd look up and it's like, should we get to the agenda? <laughs> I remember those meetings too. They were fun. And they were definitely <laughs> were fun. They were part of what kept us all there. It's a ton of work. This was a ton of work. It was a labor of love though. And without the social aspect, you know, we were all in the course of thesis writing and we needed that collegiality. It was a great outlet for us personally, even if there were no listeners, having something that wasn't our theses that we were working on collectively instead of individually was incredibly helpful for us. We also helped each other out with our academic work. We were all in the same writing group. So we would meet every week, people would be reading each other's chapters and do the critique. And to have another space where 
we were focused solely on being supportive. And we always tried to be supportive in our critique, right? We never like... Yeah, you never trashed anyone. No, we never trashed anybody. We're all there to help each other succeed. But to have another space where we could talk about the ideas and the work in a way that was meant to be fun, it brought a lot of levity to the whole thesis process. It was it was really great. That said, it probably did slow down my writing process. I did not want to admit this at the time. I thought I had everything totally in hand. Everything was completely under control. I was getting my like word count per day. In retrospect, it definitely it definitely slowed <laughs> me down. Um, but I'm not sure if I could have done things in a different way. I mean, a project like this is born out of compulsion to a certain degree. We certainly had an idea as to how we hoped it would help our careers in the long run, but we had no proof of that concept. We were just out on a limb. So we thought like, oh, we're proving this is engagement. It's, you know, building our names, building our profiles. We earn all these kind of micro credentials. We're building up new skills. We had to build all of these skills from scratch. I mean, I had never recorded anything before, but I'm just like, I'm the executive producer. (laughs) I'm going to learn how to do this and I'm going to teach all of you. And then you're going to do it just the way that I tell you to. Wasn't quite so dictatorial, I hope. (laughs) No, no, no. But there was flavors of that. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I trained you. You trained me well, though. I mean, you definitely trained me well. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we had hopes for how it would be helpful for us. And the jury is still out in a way. You mentioned earlier you came back from field work and you wanted to listen to some anthropology content. What was that field work and, and where was that? Yeah, so my field work was in southeastern Indonesia on the island of Flores, based near a regional town called Bajawa. So the people there, I mean, they're often called the Ngada ethnic group. They speak the Ngada language, as well as Indonesian, which was the language of my research. Living in what you might call traditional communities, a lot of small villages that follow particular architectural forms, spatial forms. There's a lot of cliches about this kind of society, but in Indonesia we talk about Indonesianist anthropology is a bit of an insular thing with its own terminology and uh, but talk about house-based societies. Welcome uh, to anthropology. Ian. Yeah, well, anthropology. <laughs> yeah, it's a society with sort of groups of affiliated houses. People change houses when they marry. For the most part, people I knew there were, I guess you'd call it Uxor local, but they would, men would marry into the houses of their wives uh, unless they paid what's sometimes called a bride price, in which case the woman would marry into their house and the children would belong to that house. There was a lot of fuzziness about all this in practice. Things were not nearly so prescribed, but that was kind of the gist of things. When you sit down with the elders to describe like the capital C culture, like this is what our culture is, this is the kind of thing they would describe to me. This was up in the mountains, gloriously beautiful weather, landscape, unusual even in Flores for their hospitality and the amount of food that they just jam into you anytime you show up at somebody's house. Really good moonshine liquor, uh, palm liquor, (laughs) best consumed in moderation. Uh, if you can manage it. <laughs> you definitely learned that lesson the hard way, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, man. It's, it's, I had lived in Indonesia for a long time. I'd already had enough of those bad experiences uh, <laughs> to, to know before I... But I also, it also helps you discern the good stuff. There was definitely some of the good stuff there. If you drove down to the coast, you would find like people built stills on the side of the road and there'd be like two dudes passed out and you'd know this was a good one. I went in the first place interested in studying textile culture, which was kind of in my background. I spent a few years working for an NGO based in Bali called Threads of Life that worked with weaving communities. And so I'd been traveling around the southeastern part of Indonesia and other parts of the country as well, but visiting communities where there were 
women-led cooperatives of weavers who were, you know, organizing their labor together and their sales together, selling into what you could call the tourist art market or the ethnic art market. Again, I welcome all critique of those terms. So my intention was to go and live in this mass market weaving village and kind of immerse myself in the textile trade there. When I got there, though, something disrupted that plan, which is that my partner decided to come with me, which was wonderful in so many ways. She was taking a break from her career to go and like experience this really different thing. As soon as she said she was going to do that, I knew I, I had to marry her. So I, <laughs> I did. I proposed to her on top of a volcano and she said yes. And we got married. We've got two beautiful kids now. But she'd never lived overseas before. And I wanted to make sure she had a comfortable place to be because the more comfortable the house was, the more comfortable the living situation was, the longer she'd be able to stay at a time without having to like go out go someplace else and, and reset. And I couldn't find a nice place to live in the village I was aiming at. I found one a couple of villages away, so it's just a 20-minute drive by motorbike away, not too far, but not a weaving village. is kind of in a different, as I found, a different sort of cultural sub-region. The dialect was just slightly different, and some sort of aspects of material culture was slightly different, and that made all the difference in the end. I did end up spending a lot of time with one weaving family in particular, who were really, really generous with me and walked me through all the different processes and blah, 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 blah. But when I got home and was writing up, the thesis that was coming out of me was quite different. And this was not something that I accepted until I had already been writing for at least six months. <clears throat> that was a difficult transition to make. It's a pretty common thing I've found among anthropologists. I had gone interested in studying the textile trade because of a trip I had taken to this village in 2010, so six years earlier when I was working for that NGO. And a guy had said to me, you know, textiles, they're, in, they're this very particular kind of commodity, and we only like to trade them in these particular ways. This really stuck in my head. And I based my thesis proposal on that idea, and I did all the reading, and I did all the reading about kind of social life of things, regimes of value, blah, 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 ideas that will be familiar to a lot of, a lot of listeners here. Spheres of exchange, you know, how certain objects have difficulty crossing certain kinds of boundaries, what's commensurable with money, what kinds of different currencies, historical currencies are people using, uh, different kinds of commodity currencies. So, I mean, textiles were still a commodity currency in this area up until the 1970s. Clay pots as well. They've been almost entirely superseded by cash at this point, but, you know, that stuff was still living memory. So I was all raring to go on this topic, and 2016, I show up back in this town. The guy had died, sadly. And everyone else I spoke to was like, no, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I'd lost that, that hook I was hanging things on. And again, this is a completely common thing that happens. People get out to the field and it explodes your preconceptions in a matter of minutes. And then you don't even know what you've got until you've been writing for a while. And suddenly you read something new or one of your colleagues tells you about an approach that they're using and you go, Oh, turns out my thesis is about gender or, oh, I, I knew so many people who had this experience and most of them recover. A few of them don't. Some people are too deep, like they're, they're running out of funding or they're running out of time. They've got to go find work and they never quite make the complete pivot to the new topic, which is really sad. I've, I've seen people who are wonderful teachers and brilliant scholars and, and amazing colleagues who just um, had to make a left turn and change, you know, just put the thesis aside and just go do something else with their lives. They just didn't have the funding for it because these kind of turns kept happening. And it feels like an accident, like it could happen to anybody. It's like getting hit by a bus. Like you just, you're just careful as you can, but sometimes these things just happen. Those of us 
who survived those turns. It's not because we're better scholars necessarily. It's not because we're better anthropologists. It's just um, it's luck and it's money and support. My funding ran out after three and a half years and my wife kept supporting me to finish. That's an enormous privilege. Enormous. I don't know what I would have done without that. Do you think the familiar strange contributed to this flexibility or agility, let's say, this agility for you to take this change in methodology? In a way, yes. So I said earlier that it definitely slowed me down it, because it took so many hours away. I would say that it helped me kind of keep the passion up, though. To be always thinking about clean ways to communicate complicated ideas was helpful for my writing. Blog writing was really helpful for my writing. Just as an exercise, even if none of, like, you could go back and read my blog posts. Some of them are pretty good, some of them are not so good. But they were, they were great practice in distilling complicated things down to a single point that you're trying to, a single message that you want to get across in a given number of words. You know, a thesis is so big. You think you're going to have room for everything, but you don't. You really don't. Ethnography is too thick. There's too much going on. It's too complicated. There are too many different approaches. There was a time when, for some reason, I thought it would be a good approach to do every chapter of my thesis with a different theoretical framework. Yeah, you're making a funny face at me because that's a ridiculous statement. I'm not in deep with anthropology, <laughs> but even I know that that is insane. Oh my God, completely insane. And it's just like, because each time you read something, you're like, oh, this, this is this is the thing. And then you try to work it in. There were times when I thought I would do basically a whole thesis worth of stuff about textiles and also a whole thesis worth of stuff about feasting and also a whole thesis worth of stuff about, you know, about markets I was really into the used clothing trade. I got a lot about that. None of that's in my thesis. But because this is the thing, it doesn't actually have room for everything. It's your chance to explore one thing fully, one thing. And a blog post is about writing one thing. And so just having that as an exercise was really helpful. And it's something I still use every time that I'm writing. It's anybody who writes, like, it's hard to focus. We know, we know this. And it's hard to put yourself in the mind of the reader. We know this. Blogging was helpful for that. And the communication style that we put together for the panels was helpful for that. So that was also, I mean, we did so many different mock episodes, trying out different ways we were going to do it. The very first idea, if you listen to episode one, I guess, episode two, I don't remember which is the first panel, but it's us talking about the blog posts that we wrote. The idea was like, oh, we're going to keep everything really integrated and tied together. We want the podcast to drive people to the website and the website to drive people to the podcast. That fell by the wayside straight away. We just let things stand independently. But the communication style of five minutes per person with a different topic, you know, somebody comes to the group with a headline followed by a brief explanation and a question for the group. And the prompt is, what are you thinking about this week? You get the headline, the brief explanation, Make sure everybody's voice is heard. Nothing has to be pat. You don't have to reach a conclusion, but you just cut it off and you move on and you leave listeners space to keep thinking about it on their own. And the ideal would then be that they yell at us on social media in a constructive and engaging and friendly way. Sometimes constructive, sometimes uh, <laughs> engaging, sometimes friendly. <laughs> yeah. But that communication style was also really helpful. And it's something that we honed in the studio. I mean, those 20-minute episodes would take us about an hour to record. And I would often, being the, hopefully not too dictatorial, but, you know, like trying creative directory role that I was, executive producer role that I was trying to play, 
I would sometimes stop people and ask them to rephrase what they had just said. Or I would say like, actually, I think the better point for us to focus on is this. Can we just go back and say that again? Poking Simon to make sure that he spoke up on every topic. Uh, <laughs> we still have to do that. Yeah. And I love the, the number of deep sighs at the beginning of his responses. <sighs> so it's a question is aesthetically, like as an editor, do I leave that in? It's part of creating the parasocial relationship of a listener with presenter, which is also something we worked really hard on when we really thought about like the familiar strangers as a concept we wanted listeners to feel like they knew us in as much as we were presenting our authentic selves our real selves i mean it's a, it's a performance right but in podcast studies as i gather what they talk about that parasocial relationship when people listen to podcasts they often is not on headphones somebody's speaking to you from inside your own head it doesn't get a lot more intimate than that so working on a way of talking about these ideas in a way that would be snappy and fun and inviting and not close the conversation off by concluding it with answers. That was also helpful just to learn as a communication style. And it's still something that still something that I use. So like I just joined a consulting firm. You talk to clients. It's similar. I'm not in academia. That was never my goal. I want to be talking about research approaches and complicated ideas to people who are smart but don't know about these set of approaches or concerns or kind of theoretical orientations. How are you going to put things in a nutshell for them in a way that respects their intelligence? I think that's that's a communication style that I that I honed on the familiar strange. It's still useful to me. I think that touches on the next question or the next topic that I'm curious about. Why public anthropology? Why did you decide to go, you know what, I'm going to do a public anthropology project. And instead of being like, you know what, I'm going to make a podcast where I sit down and eat eat chicken wings in my living room for two hours and watch a TV show. <laughs> People listen to those. It's People wild. People love those. Podcast landscape, man, it's crazy. It's a lot. It's, it's definitely a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> aside from, you know, what you touched on earlier saying that, you know, we I wanted more anthropology content and, you know, content that was snappier. Why did you sit down with your friends and go, you know what, I want to make a an public engagement anthropology project, I think it's called. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds that sounds right. Public anthropology engagement project. Um, yeah. So there there were a couple of reasons. One of them is like harking back to the, the Trump thing. The feeling that there needed to be a, this set of tools for social analysis needed to be more prominent in public discourse. That's to say a set of tools that's grounded in empathy and a kind of rigor about experience and, and a relativism or a respect for the life worlds of other people who may seem to be coming from quite different places, a respect for kind of the ontological basis that, that people use to make their decisions about things like politics. We felt that that attitude was lacking in the public commentary and that those tools were missing from the analysis that was in the papers that was on the radio that we were encountering. Part of it was also about community building for ourselves. I mean, we had an, a vision of the voice of, not the voice of anthropology for Australia, but like we had a vision of the social media home for anthropology in Australia. So, which is to say that we wanted every anthropologist who was based in Australia to feel like they had a platform with us. Not that we were speaking for them, but that they had a place to speak where we could hopefully bring them to a wider audience. So, you know, we'd hoped that every anthropologist in Australia who wrote a journal article would blog it with us, for instance. 
And that was something that was hard to follow up, but this was part of the part of the vision. We had hoped that we would build a contributor base for the podcast as well from around Australian universities and the world. I think there are there have been some regular contributors from the US and from around Australia. Part of it was also about sort of building the multimodal approach for communicating anthropology. So obviously writing and audio were two of those. We also had a visual anthropology module, which was called Single Shots. These are still on the website. People can find them. They were short videos or stills with just like an abstract length piece of writing for context. But they were meant to be like really digestible, not completely transparent or explicable, but just like illuminating a problem or illuminating a question and presenting a little tidbit of that ethnographic field experience in a way that would be more easily native to social media. I also had plans for TFS2. <laughs> I had grand plans. After I stepped down as executive producer and I moved back to Indonesia and was finishing up my thesis there, uh, I had plans to put together an entire second podcast channel under the TFS kind of brand for contributors. And I was going to mentor people and help them develop projects and talk to them about sound quality. And I was sort of incubating projects in Europe and America and Australia. I was talking to lots of people. I had a half dozen things in the pipeline when my wife reminded me that she was supporting me and I should please finish my PhD and get a job. <laughs> so I, I shelved all of that. It was, I, I felt, I felt really bad. I felt a bad debt to everybody who had started coming along on that with me. But I was trying to cultivate the broadest possible range of projects. So narrative projects, tone poems, you know, long rambling things, very short, tight focused things. I'm unlikely to do it at this point, so I'll just share it here. But I, I had a concept I was developing called Fieldwork Diary. And it was inspired by a podcast that I love, which is called Bird Note, which is daily two-minute episodes. And my thought was to go through my field notes day by day and record them sort of very just, I'd have to lightly fictionalize it so that people wouldn't take it as a straight-up ethnographic representation. But the idea would be it, would, it could be like a classroom tool to talk about the work of doing ethnography. And I would, I would lightly fictionalize it and maybe give it a little bit of a dramatic arc. That's not totally truthful. Yeah. <laughs> little MSG on the side, yeah, just to make it, you know. Yeah, there were ethical problems I was going to have to explore with that in terms of thinking about representation. And I had sort of hoped that I could do it in collaboration with a producer who could then critique it with me in a separate episode so that I could be party to that. And there would be an outside voice talking through what's wrong with it and sort of setting it up for a classroom setting. This is unlikely to happen now. If somebody wants to take this up, I heartily encourage, I would listen. Like for instance, there were days when, like when my partner had been with me and then she went away. I would get depressed for a day or two and I like wouldn't do anything. I would just like sit in my house and not talk to anyone. I'd watch old TV or something, listen to podcasts. And on days like that, I could release two minutes of silence. It was just a thought. It was something to, something to play with. It wasn't about representing ethnographic truths about the field site. It was a way of representing the experience of doing ethnographic work. If somebody wants to go down that route and explore that, that would be really interesting. That's TFS property. Thank you very much. That's, that's <laughs> TFS. That's TFS TM. That's the, let me put a trademark on that one before we, before it goes out. <laughs> and we had an idea also that it would help us potentially in our academic careers. Obviously, jury's still out. Jury's still out, but it, it appears at the moment, first blush would be that it hasn't. Traditional publication still rules the day. 
So yes, I published a blog post and it's been read by a thousand people, 5,000 people, however many, like it doesn't the same way as a journal article that's been read by 50 or 80. I could publish a, an interview on, a po- on the podcast and it could be listened to by two or 3,000 people and it could be cited in other articles. It could be mentioned in classrooms. It could be assigned. It could be listening groups could get together and talk about it. It still doesn't rate as far as most academic jobs go and putting it on your resume. It, it, you know, it was never my intention to stay in academia. I did apply for some postdocs and positions here and there just to see what, what was out there. I never got any nibbles on the basis of The Familiar Strange, which is disappointing to me. Um, I feel like we, we built something that kind of made it into the top five globally in its niche very quickly by focusing on what listeners might enjoy and by trying to market it well and integrating with social media as well as we could. Some thanks to the thesis whisperer, Inger Muburn. Jody and I took her course on social media for academics. It was really useful. Those, like, those skills are still skills and we can still use them in whatever careers we go down. The amount of mentorship that the four of you kind of gave me actually really shaped me and really shaped how I see the world around me. It helped me have an appreciation for other people's perspectives. And like you said, like you get to see life worlds, other people's life worlds. And I think that is ultimately why I'm still here. Yeah, like I love being part of the team, but I'm also like, this kind of helps me be a better person in the least cheesy way possible. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's a really kind thing to say. And I'm grateful for that. Thank you. And I would say that, like, why public anthropology? We talked about wanting to make something for a general audience, but if you make something for everyone, it's kind of for no one. We wanted to cobble together a set of discrete audiences, one of which was an academic anthropology audience, and the other one was an educated layperson audience. We wanted to kind of strike that balance between being technical enough to hold the respect of academics and to be an attractive destination for them to write or appear on the podcast while communicating to people who are receptive to those kinds of messages. There are limits around that receptivity. There are limits around the kinds of audiences we can target. I think we found that when we did some Facebook advertising and it put our content in front of people who were not receptive and we got, got some very abusive answers back on some of the things that we put out there. And it's like, we're students, we've got stuff to do. We can't be moderating these comments. Like we can't, we just have to build those audiences a bit more slowly and carefully. But I would put you squarely in that educated, receptive, general public audience category. And so for you to say that this has been a meaningful project for you and continues to be, that's extremely gratifying. Where do you see public anthropology? Where do you see it going next? Or do you even see it going anywhere? Have we sort of reached the, the ultimate version of public engagement with anthropology? No, 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 no. I mean, look, anthropology as a discipline is lurching from one crisis to the next. But those they're productive crises. One of the movements appears to be at the moment into graphic ethnography. So exploring sort of comic book forms and graphic novel forms in particular, that's super exciting. I feel that podcasting as a method is like the surface has only just barely been scratched in terms of like the sheer variety of what can be done in audio forms. The barrier is that it's so much work and that people aren't rewarded for it. But you know, an, an audio thesis, has that been made? I've never heard of one. If there has been one, I'd love to know. Listeners, tell me. If someone has made an audio thesis or a thesis by publication in which those publications were in an audio format. We recently interviewed Nicholas Ng, his supervisor, and I think I'm quoting directly here, his supervisor said, 
my supervisor made it very clear from the start that he wasn't going to read a word of my thesis. <laughs> All of the sort of analysis of um, his thesis would be through the music that he created or the music that he composed. Mm. So, I mean, you know, yeah. almost there. So writing has always been a problem in the representation of the people that we are learning from, giving people more, giving people more of the ability to speak with their own voices by putting them directly on tape and sharing their, letting them share their voices the way that they want to be heard. I mean, processes of co-production of that kind of knowledge, of that kind of product. If you could go into the studio with people, you could collaborate with people to produce work that's meaningful to them. And if the incentives were in line to permit that kind of thing. I mean, look, I mean, we're, off, we're after all kinds of sensory and embodied experiences. The listening experience is deep. There's so much to be explored there and so much to be shared. And I personally feel that podcasting at its best is really a form of social media. It's something that's, that's episodic and repeated and in which you form these parasocial bonds with listeners. And if you could develop a project along those lines where you are producing periodically and receiving feedback and incorporating that feedback in a way that includes your interlocutors, your, the, people, the people that you're learning from is the phrase I end up using the most. I mean, rather than like participants or... Yeah, I just like the possibilities are endless, endless. They've just begun to be scratched. And when you consider, you, you can consider then issues of accessibility. There are limits to what can be done with audio, but we've got all these other senses to work with all these ways of knowing, all these ways of communicating, they're all being used by everybody we're learning from. They're all they're all using them all. They're all they all live in landscapes of sound. They live in landscapes of touch. They live in landscapes of. I hesitate to say we could publish smells, but it surprised me. <laughs> I once heard of when I was living in when I was living in Bali. I heard of a person there who used to do aromatherapy sessions by Skype. I mean, look, anything is possible. Uh, sure. Okay, <laughs> that's how that works. <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, Ian. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Great to be back. That was it. Me and Dr. Ian Pollock. Today's episode was produced by me, Matt, with help from the other familiar strangers. Alex DeLoyer, Simon Theobald, Claire Bijal, Timothy Johnson, Carolyn West, Sean Liu, Joe Clifford, Jared Sim, and Ruanan Chen. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash The Familiar Strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>